Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the RPG Academy podcast. I am Michael and I have brought along with me today, as I always do, my favorite co-host and yours, the Caleb G. Caleb, how are you doing this fine morning, sir? I'm doing very well, Michael. Thank you. And to all of our listeners, welcome to 2017. Happy freaking New Year! I hope you did not fall into a cryogenic chamber. Unless it's like in Futurama, which then is awesome. Yeah, but then if you're in a cryogenic chamber, you're probably not listening to this podcast. Oh, I thought you meant me, not you, as in you as in the audience. I meant you as in the audience because I know you're not in a cryogenic chamber because we're talking right now. Yeah, but but we just announced 2017, which hasn't happened yet, so this is going to happen in the future. So between then and now, or now and then, possibly. Also true. Also true. Well, we just ripped the illusion of podcasting to death because we just announced that we're not recording this in January. Welcome to Behind the Curtain, folks. I think they knew that. Our listeners are smart people. Eh. <laughs> so this is faculty meeting episode 102, which is the first episode of 2017. Uh, now, the reason that we gather for these faculty meetings is so that Caleb and I can talk about our recent games and the general state of our RPG lives. And we hope that through this, we can share some of the experience he and I have gleaned from our many years of playing tabletop RPGs. But we understand that the opinions we share and the advice we give may not work at every table every time. But there is one piece of advice that we do feel is pretty universal. And Caleb, what is that one piece of advice? If you're having fun, you're doing it right. That is correct, sir. So no matter what game you play, the system or edition, what rules you use, don't use, or misuse, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Now with all of that out of the way, do we have any announcements this morning? Yeah, the first thing we want to announce today is that 2017 will feature the return of Movie Days. And there was much rejoicing. Yay! And we will be kicking off our Movie Day here in 2017 with the fantastic cinematic masterpiece, Cull the Conqueror. Oh, it's such a good movie. Even saying that makes me sad. Oh, uh, See, I'm laughing. Sometimes you have to laugh so you don't cry. Uh, so yeah, so movie day is something that we both really enjoy. We've, with most of what we try to do here on the Academy, we've gone up and down and we've had some issues, uh, but we, we, we want to keep doing it. We really enjoy it. So we, our plan is to do it roughly once a month, maybe once every other, just depends on schedule, but we want to try to get more of them out there and we're going to start with Cole the Conqueror. I apologize in advance. <laughs> I do not. A uh, couple other announcements. Uh, we've already sort of announced, if you listen to our bonus episode uh, from a Catacon thank yous, that uh, we are doing a Catacon again. Shocker, I'm sure. And for those of you who don't care, I apologize. You're hearing a lot about a Catacon. But it's exciting to us. It's a big deal. And so we have set the dates for next year. Again, it's going to be a Catacon 2017, November 10th, 11th, and 12th, back at the uh, DCC. Uh, but what we want to announce today is that we are a going to use Kickstarter again uh, for pre-sales and that the date that Kickstarter will launch is April 13th. So just to clarify, this will be the pre-sale for Catacon 2017. We will continue to sell tickets via Eventbrite like we did last year. The pre-sale will be for GMs, VIPs sponsors, vendors, and so on and so forth. If you 
do not get a ticket through Kickstarter, don't worry. We will be launching our regular store later in the year, and that's how we'll sell the majority of our general admission tickets. Uh, we are launching the Kickstarter early, specifically for pre-sales, because, frankly, there's a lot of expenses in reserving the DCC, covering travel, uh, getting some of the features that we know now that we need at the DCC, which has an extra expense. So that's why we're doing it this way. This is going to be the upfront seed money to get everything going. Right, all the deposits and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, so we will be selling $10 GM badges again this year with a few more available. So if you want to run a couple games for us, you can uh, get in much, much cheaper. We also will be selling some early bird badges for 30 bucks compared to the normal price of 40 So if you back us on Kickstarter, then you can actually get in a little bit cheaper that way as a benefit. And we're also going to do a Kickstarter exclusive t-shirt. This is an add-on item, uh, which will be cheaper than what the t-shirts will cost if we have them at actual event and it will be an exclusive image that you can only get if you are a kickstarter backer so hopefully if you're listening to this you came last year and you want to come next year or i should say you came last year and you want to come this year because we're in january please consider using the kickstarter uh, i know we're asking for your money early in the year compared to when the event is uh, but as we're still growing we still need that seed money and it makes things much much easier but absolutely as caleb said if you can't commit because you don't know what your schedule is going to be in november no worries we will still be able to sell you a ticket later and we also can sell you tickets at the door but enough of a catacon let's move on to our main topic but actually before we do that there's one other thing we got to do caleb and what is that they can get a hold of us and that is remind everyone how they can get a hold of us. The easiest way, of course, is on Twitter. I am found at the Caleb G. Michael is found at the RPG Academy. Of course, we are also available via email. Michael at the RPGacademy.com. Or you could email Caleb at the RPGacademy.com, but I don't check that email very often. Yeah, so do not do that. Uh, you can also reach both of us, which means me, at podcast at the rpgacademy.com. And when you email that, it just gets forwarded to my regular email that I actually check. So I'll get it eventually. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so with all of that out of the way, it's time to get actually into the show. And we are going to start this episode with a gamer's lexicon. And Caleb, what is our gamer's lexicon term for today? Today we are talking about rules as written versus rules as intended. So if you are fairly new to the hobby, or if you're on any forums like Reddit or Facebook or others, you have probably seen these acronyms thrown around, R-A-W versus R-A-I. So R-A-W means rules as written, R-A-I means rules as intended. So Caleb, when you are discussing these sort of things, how would you explain it in somewhat simple terms to someone who's not familiar with these? Rules as written is exactly the words on the page in the book. Rules as intended are an interpretation of the written rules within the context of gaming at your own table and how those rules can change in a home game. Okay. Now, a lot of times the... This um, kind of gets rolled into what I've always heard called the rule of cool and goes into one of my biggest, you know, proponent things in RPGs is that the rules don't get in the way of the story. And I will absolutely fudge things to make the story go the way I think it needs to or what I think will be the most fun. 
So we're going to sort of somewhat transition. These are very related topics, but we're going to go out of lexicon and into our main topic and break down kind of what this means and what are some examples and give you our viewpoints. So, Caleb, can you think of a good example that we could sort of analyze in regards to rules as written versus rules as intended or slash rule of cool? Yeah, there's actually lots of different things we can talk about here. It kind of applies to many, many subjects. One we could start with is, let's say someone wants to jump off of a ledge or a balcony and attack an opponent who is on the ground. That sounds awesome. It happens. Absolutely. Done. Show over. (laughs) But uh, some people, uh, particularly if you play like an organized play, I think, and I don't want to give that necessarily like a negative connotation, but they want to try to follow the rules pretty well exactly. Now, there is no actual rule for jumping off a balcony and attacking someone, at least not in 5th edition. But there are rules for jumping and for falling. And if we wanted to interpret those very strictly, I don't think the game is designed to give the attacking player any sort of benefit. I don't want to use the word advantage because of the connotation. Any sort of benefit in doing that. But from the rule of cool, I absolutely, as a DM, want you to get rewarded for trying it. Doesn't mean you'll, it will, will work out exactly the way you want, but I want to encourage that type of thing. So from strictly rules, how would you handle that? If, if you were going to go strictly rules, Caleb, how would you handle someone jumping from a balcony to attack someone below? Well, there's a couple different ways I think you could approach it and still be within the confines of the rules as written. You could very easily use the advantage and disadvantage mechanic in 5th edition. However, you could argue very easily that while jumping off the ledge to attack someone might give you advantage, uh, you also gain disadvantage for falling and trying to attack someone. So that becomes a wash, and then the mechanic has no benefit, so it kind of loses the theme of what we're talking about here. Uh, You could add in an athletics or an acrobatics check before the start of the attack. And you could see if a successful check lets you jump over the edge without risking falling. And then you could have a regular attack roll at the culmination of this movement. So you could do it with a skill check followed by an attack roll. I think within the limits of 5th edition, that would probably be the most close to rules as written as possible. Well, there's also falling damage. Uh, It's on page 183 of the player's handbook that basically for every 10 feet that you fall, you take uh, 1d6 additional damage or bludgeoning damage, I should say, to a maximum of 20d6. So how would you translate that into this situation? Would you allow the person who's being attacked to take some of that damage or would the person who's attacking have to roll for that separately? So that's kind of the negative, like, hey, you get to do this cool thing, but you're going to break both your ankles when you land. Well, I could see this going a couple different ways. In my opinion, whenever there is the chance of a falling damage, there should also be some sort of skill check that allows you to negate or lessen that damage. In older editions, I would call for a tumble check to see if you can parkour and roll your way out of the falling damage. In 5th edition, we could say that with an acrobatics or an athletics check, maybe you negate the damage just like before, 
Or maybe with a high enough DC, that becomes bonus damage to the attack. Because in my head, if we're going back to the rule of cool, I see this like any action movie or video game. When you jump off a ledge and you land on someone, you have that added momentum of your body weight to the attack. So it makes sense to me that there should be, in some cases, a lot of bonus damage. And and that's the way I kind of lean. So so again, getting away from what the book actually says and just the the Michael version, I absolutely want to encourage this type of behavior. I think it's it's fun, uh, and I want to see it happen. And I want to see it succeed. So generally, the way I would handle that is, I mean, if you're jumping like ninety feet, I, I don't know. I haven't thought about that. If you're jumping from typical cowboy, you know, banister up upper level down onto the bar, that type of thing, fifteen foot ledge, I'm going to give you a bonus on the attack, which in 5th edition becomes advantage because I, I think it's awesome. And I'm going to give you a bonus to the damage because the, you're falling. And then I'll probably have you roll something to see if you also take damage. But the consequence is if you fail the attack, so you have advantage, but if you still fail the attack, then you're going to take that damage to your face because you missed, and you're going to have disadvantage on the next turn when that person attacks you. So it's all in your favor, but you could still fail, and there's still penalties for failing, but I'm not going to break it down into seven different roles, seven different skill checks, and make it as less effective than if you just did the normal boring thing. I want people jumping off ledges and trying to ram their sword into someone's neck from a, from a balcony. That's just cool. And I think the point you brought up there, Michael, is that when we are looking at rules as written versus rules as intended, a lot of times if we try to fit an odd situation into the rules as written, it completely stops the momentum of the game and the story because it does become a series of six or seven checks to do the one thing if we want to follow the rules exactly as they exist. Uh, I, I think a another good example of this is uh, grappling in older editions. Uh, grappling in 3.5 was a chore and a headache because... When you say, oh, I punch this guy and try to pin his arm to his side, you immediately have to stop what you're doing and look up the grapple rules because everyone forgets them. And then it becomes a series of opposed checks, but those opposed checks are on the more complicated side. So if you're wanting to follow the rules as written, you either have to stop and look everything up right then and then keep your finger in the book for the next time your turn comes around uh, be because now you're uh, – having to look at this chart and say, okay, well, I'm rolling my dex versus your strength and you get a bonus for size, but I get a bonus for this feat I have. And it just becomes this back and forth of how do we roll the dice and how much do we add? The, the point of this is that if you're sticking to the rules as written, a lot of times it slows the game down. Now there's nothing wrong with that. I, I think what we need to remind everyone is there's nothing wrong with playing rules as written. However, it does sometimes get in the way of pacing and momentum and that cool factor that we're chasing when we're playing a role-playing game. And it depends on what what you get from it, what, what your sense of enjoyment is. And again, there are people who like to play D&D &D and other role-playing games very tactically uh, where 
you know, the difference between moving five squares or six squares is a huge deal. And they feel very rewarded when they maneuver their, their piece correctly or their character correctly. And they're able to line up a particular attack to the most efficiency. And like that is, that is fun for them. I have no problem with that. It's not necessarily the way that I particularly like to play the game. And it's not as necessarily as fun for me. So when I'm, when I'm DMing, I'm much more flexible again as you know Professor Fluff it shouldn't be shocking. Um one one last thing I'll touch on the balcony jump and then I have a couple other examples would be I could see a situation where you say you get disadvantage on the attack because it's not a normal attack it's not something you initially have trained for but if you hit then you get extra damage. Because uh, I think a lot of people have kind of used that for things like called shots, which don't exist in 5th edition. But if I'm an archer and I want to try to shoot the wand out of the wizard's hand before they cast their spell, there's no rule for that. How about you roll for with disadvantage? But if you hit, okay, fine, you get what you want. I can see that as sort of a middle ground as well, where, okay, there's no rule for jumping off a balcony and attacking a guy. But if you do it, something cool will happen. So you get disadvantage if you hit, then then you still get what you want, but it's a little bit harder. I could totally see that as a viable option, but for me at my table, I'm probably going to give you advantage for that because I want you to do it. Um, So another one that I would bring up is what I often use in my games from Lord of the Rings is that any magic item thrown into a volcano is destroyed. That's not in the rules. In fact, I'm sure there are some magic items that are specifically like resistant to heat. I don't care. If it's a magical item, you throw it in a volcano. In my game, it's destroyed. Well, that's fair. That's how you want to play your game. Right. Because I just feel like that's <laughs> cool. Again, it's, it, it, you're, you're doing it because it's cool. It's a big thematic movie moment. Uh, if Again, if we look at older editions, there were rules for destroying magical items and artifacts. And frequently, artifact level items had a paragraph on how to destroy them how to unmake them. Some of them were as simple as throw it into a volcano or throw it into this specific volcano or throw it into this specific volcano on this specific plane of existence. Some of them gave you information about rituals to complete or an item can only be unmade by striking it with this specific weapon, things like that. I think what you're getting at here, though, is that you're trying to figure out ways to make the game more interesting when you introduce items or subjects that are in direct opposition to the players. So if something exists in the game world that is a problem to the players or is a curse or is a challenge to them, you want them to simply have the option of, How do I destroy it? Because that becomes a quest. That becomes a hook to the the campaign. If I have to destroy this item, what's the consequence of that? How How does it happen? What's the procedure I follow? So what you're talking about here, I think, if I can kind of get to the root of this concept, is sometimes the rules don't give you a way to overcome an obstacle creatively so the rules as intended what you want to happen that's cool is you want to have freedom for your players to say well what if i do this does it work and you want to reward them for thinking creatively 
Yeah, and in general, that's pretty much what I always want to do. And, I'm, you know, again, I'm a, I'm a human. I fail at that sometimes. And in the heat of a game, I may make a decision that later I regret. But most of the time going into the game, I want I want uh, characters and players interchangeably to be able to solve problems however they want to with there being at least a chance of success. And that's that's basically how I design encounters, which is probably a terrible way for designing encounters because I don't ever go into them thinking, okay, because this character has this ability and this character has this spell, then I will give this bad guy this particular vulnerability so that way when those two things are used, it will allow them to beat the main bad guy. Because I don't want to do that. One, because players will never remember in, in the heat of the moment. It seems like they never remember to do those things. I want to just go, okay, this is what makes sense for the story. This is what you're fighting. You figure it out. And if you come up with anything that it's in any way close, then there's a chance it will work. Doesn't guarantee it will work, but there's a chance it will work. Just like you got a magical item that's cursed. It's going to bring about the downfall of your entire land. We have no way of destroying it. Some dude's like, hey, I got an idea. Let's throw that thing into a volcano. Okay, great. You can, if you can get there, absolutely that will work. Let's let's have an adventure. Well, I, I agree with you completely, Michael. And I think what we're also tiptoeing around here as another topic, another subject, a bit of a tangent, is that a lot of times if we make a specific plan, and in this context, rules are a specific plan, Things don't go the way we plan out, and if we're trying to adhere to that plan or follow those rules, it could get in the way of an enjoyable game moment. As you just said, if you design a bad guy with a specific pattern of how to defeat him or her, or it, and the players don't figure that out and try something differently— do you reward them for trying something differently or do you punish them for not figuring out the puzzle? And in some contexts, it is important to stick to the rules of the puzzle and have the appropriate consequences for not solving the puzzle. But in other situations, it is more important to reward creativity and the fun that is happening in the moment. Uh, go back to a video game. If you're playing a video game, there's probably one way to beat the boss. Not as true anymore, because more video games nowadays are sandboxy with a lot of different options. But if we go back to video games when we were kids, there was one way to beat the boss, and you had to find that pattern, figure it out. You had to get the right item from the right dungeon, bring it to the right boss, and 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 fight the boss that way. The game designers wrote one way to complete that level. Is that how you want your D&D tabletop RPG to run? Sure, that's fine. But you have to understand that's what you're doing. And if you want more freeform creativity, then you might have to step away from the rules as written. You might have to interpret them and figure out what's really best for the moment. And again, like we always say here on the show, there's nothing wrong about either way of doing this. But you have to have self-awareness with what you are doing and preparing at your table and what your players want to do. Absolutely. If, if you want to play a game more akin to rules as written are the law, have fun. I'm glad you're playing. I hope you have the most fun in the world. 
this show is not going to help you a whole lot, probably, for running that type of game. Um, so another one of my favorite examples is the Grease spell. I'm absolutely on record that my favorite spell in the game is Grease. I've had more fun casting that spell than any other. And in my games, the Grease spell is always flammable. But in the actual rules, it doesn't say that. It just says that the component is a bit of pork rind or butter in the 5th edition. I think in older editions it, it didn't even say butter. Uh, and to me, that translates to, uh, yeah, it's flammable. I agree. And I agree because it's more entertaining and it's cool. But if you are playing rules as written and a player says, hey, if I cast Grease, can I then set it on fire? Well, the rules of the spell don't specifically say it's flammable. So then you are entering into the metaphysical debate of what magic is in the game world. Are you actually summoning and creating the physical matter of Greece? If so, does it follow typical physics of reality? And if you're summoning a bottle of Greece, Greece is flammable in reality. So yes, logically that should still happen. Or do you argue that the Greece spell is not actually summoning or creating a physical property, it is just making a grease-like substance appear, or you are just simulating the frictionless uh, impact or result of spreading grease on the floor. So diving into rules as written can, again, be a little time-consuming and weighty, because you're trying to figure things out that might not just be as simple as, oh, yeah, that's great, do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. But again, Greece is always flammable because if it's not, flip what's, the table, F that game. Right. What's the point? If I can't <laughs> if I can't trip somebody and then set them on fire, I don't understand why I'm playing a wizard right now. There's no point in living if you can't do that. <laughs> um, so here's another. I think this, this might be the last one, at least the last one I'll bring up today unless you have another. Uh, but this comes up a lot. I've seen, again, some of the forums that I'm part of. So let's say that I want to play an elf. But my elf in my background was lost as a small child, kind of like Tarzan, and I was found and raised by a band of savage orcs or half-orcs in this wilderness, and, and I've grown up in that society. Can I play an elf who has orc traits rather than elf traits? So I would have things like menacing or relentless endurance or savage attacks because I was an elf that grew up in that tribe rather than an elf that grew up in elven society. Is it okay to interchange traits if it somewhat makes sense for the background like I, I could argue that my elf shouldn't have you know dark vision or whatever um whatever orcs have because that's not really tied to the culture it's tied to their physical nature but i could argue that some of these others are cultural so how would you feel about that if someone's at your table and they want to play a dwarf who was raised by elves or a halfling that was raised by humans are you okay with some interchanging of these basic uh, attributes and these basic, like, you know, pluses here, minuses there, because that makes sense. Because I'm pretty sure the rules say no. Me personally, yes. O of course I will allow that. As long as it makes sense to the story and it's, in my opinion, appropriately balanced. If someone wants to have all the native features of an elf and then on top of that, some of the beneficial features of another race, I might try to find a compromise there. Because story-wise, that might not make as most sense. Uh, rules as written, 
the answer is no, because there's no, in 5th edition anyway, there's no situation for that to happen. Now, if we look back to Pathfinder, Pathfinder has dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of options for swapping out racial abilities. And they give you a lot of flavor to tie into there. So if I wanted to be an elf who grew up in a savage wasteland, there are rules for remove this racial feature and add in that racial feature. So if you are looking for a situation where rules allow you to do that, look at Pathfinder, because the rules are there. If we're talking specifically about 5th edition and the rules are not there, I can use Pathfinder options as a guideline or a foundation, but ultimately I'm just going to do what makes the most sense. And I think I'd have a conversation with the player why they want to swap things out, what their intent is. Is it just to do something cool and thematic? Is it to try to stack with some other abilities and kind of min-max out a really cool player option or character option? I mean, I'd want to know why. But ultimately, I think the more interesting kind of philosophical conversation is which racial abilities are, in fact, intrinsic to the race and which are a cultural adaptation. Because you could argue that dark vision is genetically racial, but you could also argue that it's an evolution based on environment. So if, if you take a dwarf who typically has dark vision and you say that in my game, all dwarves forever and ever have lived on the surface and they've been tribal barbarian tribes Dark vision might not make as much sense. Maybe a different type of ability in the same vein or theme would be more applicable. And again, I, I know I'm kind of getting off topic here because we're talking a little bit more about world building and creating things, but it still relates back. I mean, the rules say dwarves have these abilities and you're done. Elves have these abilities and you're done. But... Along those same lines, 5th edition does include the concept of racial subclasses. So instead of just removing abilities or swapping abilities, you could simply create another subclass. And the subclasses typically add in some other features or swap some other features around. So even if we want to stick to rules as written in this argument in this topic there are there is already an avenue in place within fifth edition to rewrite the rules as written or to exploit a loophole in the rules as written to do what you want to do no i think that that makes a lot of sense i um you you touched on something that, that i'm sure has come across whether i've said it directly or not uh but whenever someone wants to try to do something at my table that's that's unusual, like someone wants to play a pixie, my question is going to be why? What is it about the pixie that you want to play? And if it is because you are interested in exploring how that type of creature might be out of place because of their size or because of their culture, then I'm much more likely to say, okay, yeah, let's let's have fun with that than, well, I have a fly speed and I'm immune to non-magical weapons. Because if, if you're simply making a choice of your race or your class just because it gives you a mechanical benefit, 
I'm not really excited about that. That That's not something I like to do. And probably you're not going to have fun in my game anyways, because I'm not going to run encounters that will truly let you benefit from those choices because I'm going to let, you know, crazy things happen and crazy things work. But I think that if you're someone else and, and, and people are coming to you saying, hey, I want to be an elf that was raised by orcs, I think it's always a good question to ask, well, why? What is it about that that you're trying to do? And if it's just because they want to try to get some sort of advantage, whether it's mechanical or not, then I think that's where you might have to say no before the game starts and maybe work with them and try to come up with another way of of them getting something that they want. They want to play a particular type of character. Maybe there's a different way they can do it so that you as the DM will be happy with that character at your table and them as a player will be happy with the character in your game and everybody is fine. And then the last thing I would say about rules as written versus rules intended and rules of cool is, again, I'm all for it, but almost always, I'm going to say almost just because I'm sure there's examples where I'm wrong, but almost always I'm going to do this in favor of the players. I'm very rarely ever going to say, no, I want to do this because I think this makes sense and it hurts your character in that moment. If you are someone who's going to change rules or make up your own stuff, you need to make sure that your players are on board with it first. So like during session zero or before the campaign starts, say, hey, in my world, grease always is on fire. Anything you throw in a volcano is destroyed. Um, if you jump off ledges, you get disadvantaged on the attack. Then you may not be able to come up with every example of every possible opportunity. But if you're going to do those things, it's, it's good that the players know up front because you don't want to surprise them. You know, you don't want them to have built a character that, that's designed to do a certain thing and then two uh, sessions in, you as the DM say, that's not working the way I want it to. It doesn't work anymore. If you are going to do that, then you need to allow that player to rebuild their character, ignore continuity, and okay, they've always been a Dragonborn Sorcerer. I don't care that they happen to be a half-orc yesterday. No, this character has always been a Dragonborn Sorcerer because you've decided that this thing doesn't fit your world or your game. I just think you should always be in favor of the players Whenever there's a conflict of rules as intended or your your rule of cool, you're less likely to have problems that way. I agree, but I think that sometimes coming up with cool situations in the moment are not always advantageous to the players and their characters. Sometimes the cool thing that happens is the volcano explodes and everyone is now in trouble. But I think the... I think the core of what you're getting at is do what's best for the story in the moment. And if the the best thing for the story is that the players have a really cool advantage because they're being really heroic, then absolutely you should facilitate that and let that happen. If the coolest thing in the story is that the volcano erupts and now we have to deal with a plague of lava men that had been lying dormant, If that's cool, that's cool. Then make it happen. That's not necessarily good for the players, but it's a cool thing to happen. It's an exciting thing to happen in the story. So you should let that happen. Absolutely. And so with that, we will bring this section to a close, except for one thing. I will throw this out to any listeners. Let's say you have a player at your table who wants to use a line of effect spell or ability, but they want to try to ricochet it off of a corner or a ceiling or around a around something, how would you handle that? Rule of cool, 
rules is written. Send us an email, send us a tweet, post on the comments of this episode, and give us your sort of thoughts and breakdown on how you would handle something like that. Uh, whether you'd let it happen or not, why, why not, maybe what would have to be in place for you to let it happen, or maybe some examples from your home game where it has or hasn't happened. Okay, with that out of the way, we will transition into our basically last topic. There's a few housekeeping things at the end, but we're going to do our new student introductions. Again, this is our, our section or segment where we take a class and background and mush them together and try to come up with some examples, maybe from media or just our own examples of how this could work or what might be an interesting version. Uh, and through the use of random number generation through Twitter, thank you uh, at Reverus for being quick on the draw, fastest integers in the West, uh, we have come up with the Soldier Monk, which I actually find is a pretty interesting combination. I, I've, I don't play monks a lot. I don't have a lot of experience playing them, but uh, it got my juices flowing a little bit, but I'll start with you, Caleb. Do you have any thoughts on a good sort of story for a soldier-monk combination? I could think of a couple different hooks we could use. I think, in my opinion, the easiest might be playing to the background as actually the background uh, backstory of the character. The character was a soldier, and for whatever reason, instead devoted his or her life to monastic training. So I could think of maybe a soldier who was fell out of favor in, in the services that they were in, or maybe after a big giant fight became just disheartened with the rigorous soldier lifestyle started wandering and ended up at a monastery and, and became trained as a monk. Uh, I could think of someone who was a soldier in a war against the monks, became injured, and the monks, out of their compassion and morality, nursed this soldier back to health. And then the soldier realized, oh, well, I guess we're not that different. Maybe I, I should learn from these people, and then started training as a monk. But what's interesting there is I'm kind of making the assumption that monks are that more peaceful, reserved, almost religious uh, practice of meditation and calmness off in the mountains, which is kind of interesting because the implication is there in almost every edition of the monk that has happened in D&D. But the monk also simultaneously has some of the best combat abilities. So the monk is kind of playing both sides of the fence there, being a really, really good martial artist, but also being this more calm, reserved, serene meditator off in the woods or in the mountains. So it kind of depends on how you interpret a monk. Uh, what are your thoughts, Michael? Actually, the, I think the second one you mentioned was the first one that came to my mind. The idea of a soldier in some sort of conflict as across enemy lines becomes separated, becomes injured, and is taken in by a monastery and becomes, you know, sort of ingrained into that culture. Because uh, I just like that sort of, uh, again, as a background, I just like the idea of this soldier who has maybe a violent, dark past that is, and I think we've touched on this in some of the other backgrounds, that may be catching up with them. So they now try to follow this new path. Uh, more of a serenity, 
you know, peacefulness, but yet they still know how to fight, both with weapons and without. They eventually go back into the world. They try to be reintegrated, and maybe some of their former soldiers, maybe the government they used to work for, maybe their former commander seeks them out, and, you know, they, they don't want to re-engage, and they have to fight against that urge. I just like the, sort of the internal conflict that might come up of that. Uh, the other idea I thought was kind of interesting actually goes back to uh, one of our first movie days, or I won't say first, one of our recent ones, uh, the first in the name of the king. I think it was the first one um, where the king happened to randomly have like seven ninja who were like his personal <laughs> guard. So you could have a group of, of monks who are, in fact, a, like a soldier, like a, a, a unit of some sort that are either, you know, sent out. Uh, maybe there's some sort of this ancient agreement that the monastery is, is given leeway to exist. In exchange, they send some of their greatest warriors every four years to protect the nobleman or the king, and they're part of some sort of elite unit. And then, of course, the king gets assassinated, and whoever perpetrated the assassination blames these monks. So you're now sort of a, an outlaw trying to uncover the, the true purpose or the true culprits, but you have both a soldier and both a monk uh, you know, features. Another good idea kind of based right off of that, if we assume that the monastery is a place for calmness and serenity and peace off in the mountains, we could say that they also have guards of the of the monastery. They have members of their troop, of their collective that are trained in martial combat to protect the rest of them, the high religious men, the acolytes, the people who are meditating and praying and, and doing whatever. So you could be a monk who is also a soldier in real time because you have decided to take up the martial training to protect your brothers. Sort of almost like a caste system where some of the monks are, you are a soldier monk, you are a philosopher monk, you yeah. are a spiritual monk. Yeah. And then, you know, the soldier monks are the ones that are charged with protecting. Because I, I guess for me, when I think of a soldier, at least in the context of D&D, is it's it's a very rigid lifestyle, a lot of training, a lot of repetition, you know, uh, formations, you work as a group. And then also that there's a camaraderie, that you are part of a unit. And, you know, in D&D, that doesn't mean everybody has to be part of the same one because that's what backgrounds are backgrounds. But I do like the idea of a game where maybe you are all part of the same unit. You're all monks. You're all monk soldiers. And then the adventure is based around something happening and you guys and girls having to go out of your comfort zone uh, and do a thing. So I, I, I like that, the sort of conflict of nature, because while monks are... Uh, certainly they train a lot. There's a lot of repetition in, in their movements. It doesn't seem, I, I don't know, the, the idea of being like a, like a Spartan soldier in your training just feels different to me. Maybe that's just my Western idea of what monks are and it's totally crap. But I feel like there's a difference in philosophy, even though there's a lot of the same type of repetition and and precision that would come from both sides of training to be a soldier and then training to be a monk. Well, based off of that, let's say you had a game where everyone has the soldier background. So you actually have a, uh, depending on, I guess, how many players you had, uh, if you were a little, what's the word I'm trying to think of? A troop, uh, a group of soldiers, like a, a, unit, oh, uh... a unit, a platoon, something like that. Yeah. So let's say you're all a platoon 
you all have the soldier background because you all grew up in the military. Well, you could all still be different classes and just represent your different approaches to combat or your different roles within the army. This is kind of the uh, the video game concept where you can pick different classes and different build-outs of your skills on the skill tree. You're all soldiers, but you have a medic, and you have the tank, and you have the sniper. So you could say that as a soldier monk, I'm still a soldier. I'm still part of this rigid, uh, regimented lifestyle, but I choose to fight with my hands and feet, martially, as opposed to my buddy the tank, who straps on a hunk of armor and wields a sword. You just described our G.I. Joshu episodes. Yes, I did. <laughs> I count that as a positive. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great uh, campaign idea, is you're like a special forces sort of unit. You know, everybody's everyone's part of the same unit. You're all soldiers, but you have your cleric or your monk or your fighter or your ranger or your wizard, and you work together and you take on jobs. And, and I could certainly see, you know, the first third of a long campaign being based off of that. And then, you know, at some point there'd be a twist. Maybe it turns out you were working for the wrong side or there was a third enemy that you were ignoring that now has the weather dominator and you have to, you know, work together with your former enemies, that kind of thing. But I think that would be a lot of fun to play that type of game. It's not necessarily a normal D&D &D style. I know there are games that that's more of a understood conceit, like, like Warhammer 40K, for example. I think that's probably more of a common thing that would happen. You're on the same ship, all part of the same army or unit or whatever. But I think it could work really well in a D&D &D game. And I think ultimately what we're getting at here is there are many ways to interpret the backgrounds and the classes in Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition. When we say monk, it evokes a certain visual image and a lot of that is a lot of that is based on the pictures we see in the book and what comes to mind when we think of movies and television and comic books when we think of a monk we think of that very typical martial artist from eastern stereotypes and tropes but it doesn't mean that that's what a monk is in your game and your interpretation. If you want the monk to be more of a common, just skilled hand-to-hand -hand combatant, that's fine. The monk does not have to be this mysterious religious sect that is off in the mountains and only one or two of them come down every once in a while to wander around and start some shenanigans how you interpret the character and its place in the world is completely up to you. And when we have these new student segments, that's really what we're getting at. We're trying to think of creative, out-of-the-box interpretations of how classes are typically interpreted. And my last is a movie example, because I just thought of it, I can't believe it came to me this late, would be Frank Dukes from Bloodsport. Because then you switched them, you were a monk first, and then you became a soldier but then you have to go back to fighting the Kumite because, you know, your father. Not really, but, you know, adoptive. And then you also have to do a lot of splits. Yes, you do. It's required. It's a, it's a special skill. 
Awesome. All right. Well, that will close up new student introductions. Uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed. And, and as before, if you have some examples that maybe we didn't think of or you would like to bring up or you've had from your games, absolutely. Please let us know. Email us. Send us a tweet. Comment in the comment section on your examples. So the last thing we want to do is we want to read some reviews. But before we do that, the next to last thing we're going to do is we're going to thank some of our Patreon supporters. Alrighty, we will start off with NPC Cast. Thanks, guys. And again, I just want to give a very quick shout out. I know I've said this before, but we almost turned off our Patreon because we had no one support us for quite a while. It was very sad. And the guys from NPC Cast stepped up, gave us $5, and that kind of snowballed, and they really started it. If it hadn't been for them, we probably would have eventually turned it off. And I have followed suit and I now give money to other people who are just starting because I want to pay that forward. And I really cannot thank those guys enough for what they've done for us. So again, very much thank you, uh, the guys at NPC Cast. Uh, next up would be Lucas from City of Brass. Thank you, Lucas. Next up is Scott Brown. I don't think I know this guy. Uh, mm, sounds familiar. Isn't he like a congressman or something in Ohio? <laughs> I, I think he might be a government agent. Oh, okay. Yeah, then we probably should stop talking about yeah. it. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Thank we, you, Scott. We disavow this conversation. <laughs> uh, next up is another Scott. Scott from our Dark Hearts crew. Thank you, Scott. Next is Travis Stewart. I don't think I know this guy either. No, uh, definitely not our Travis. Definitely not our Travis. Thanks, not our Travis, stranger, <laughs> who we don't know. Uh, Melissa, also part of the Dark Hearts crew. Thank you very much. Quinn Wilson from Swallows of the South. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, man. Uh, Richard Oka. I'm sure I screwed that up. Ocha? Either way. I'm sorry, but thank you. Shane. He of the short shorts. Thank you, Shane. Lisa Slack. Thank you so much. Rich Howard. Good buddy, Rich Howard, who's also uh, can be found on the Whelmed podcast. Just happens to be a very coincidental uh, thing to bring up. Hey, Rich. Thanks, buddy. Tony Green, thank you so much. Josh Wilson, thanks, Josh. One of multiple Jareds. This is Jared without the last name. Thank you, Jared. Fear the Boot, network member. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Battle Bards, longtime um, fans of our show, I guess. They've been very supportive of us for a long time. Thank you, guys. And specifically, uh, I always say this, but Battle Bards is the driving force behind the sound effects and the music we use on Rod Iron and our other produced actual plays. We cannot thank them enough for supporting us through all of that. So thank you very much, Battle Bards. Uh, going on, Michael Lane. Is, is this the Michael Lane I'm thinking of? From i 99% sure that is from Cthulhu and Friends. Well, Michael Lane, if you're the Michael Lane from Cthulhu and Friends, I hope you don't roll a one. And thanks, buddy. And avoid those ladders. That was the other guy. Well, I know, but still, it's, just, it's dangerous in that world. Just in ladders. general, avoid ladders, right? Yes. Uh, GM Jim McClure. And we don't need to thank to... him. We don't need to thank him. He's a <laughs> Yeah, never mind. Uh, control, delete that. Yep. Kevin Green. Thank you, Kevin. Earl Wilson. Thank you, sir. Darcy Ross. The wonderful Darcy Ross. Thank you, Darcy. Jared Smith. Uh, the other Jared, this one with the last name, who's also part of our faculty. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Danny Silva. Thanks, Danny. Rob the Beard's death. Who also just launched his own podcast, the uh, Orpheus Project. Orpheus Project, which 
I just listened to the first two episodes. They're really good. They're on my short list of things to get to soon. So I've got some travel and a lot of window time or windshield time. They're on the list. There's only two right now. They're good. Knock them out. This next person, we're we're just going to make him a little bit upset right now because we can't not talk about how awesome John Neary is. He's pretty awesome from what I hear. John, you're a good guy. Thank you very much for being a patron supporter. Thank you for running some of the best games at a Catacon. I do not want you to write another email after hearing this thank you. <laughs> I'll take it. I like them. They make me feel better about myself. Uh, Tyler Beckett. Thank you, man. Appreciate your support. Daniel Elwell. Thanks, Dan. We appreciate it. Joshua Rassi. Thanks, man. Really appreciate it. Alejandro Pena. Thank you, Alejandro. And you're very lucky that in this lineup, you came up on me to say your name. Lucky or misfortunate? Who can I say? I said it right. I don't know how you would have said it. <laughs> <laughs> See, I wanted to mispronounce the next one on purpose and say Onus. No, but it's uh, Jonas. Thank you, sir. Uh, Phil Stewart. Thanks, Phil. So the next one's John and Jacob, which are actually my kids. So technically, thank you, Val, because she's the one who set that up. Thanks, babe. I, I think you should bring the kids down and have them say you're welcome. <laughs> Good buddy of the show, RKL, Richard Kreutz Landry. It was a blast meeting you and hanging out at a catacon. And I think you played in my Wushu game, which was really fun. Yeah, he played in a couple of my events. A really good guy, big supporter of our show, and uh, and happy to have him uh, part of what we're doing here. But I'm just going to call him RKL because I think that's cooler. Yeah, yeah, and I can't pronounce his last name, so that's what <laughs> I say. Jacob Waterman, who I'm 99% sure this is uh, Edgeland Games, Jacob, right? I think so. If not, I'm sorry. If so, you're welcome. He who did not show up at a catacon because he was running a restaurant. Yeah, I know. What's up with that? I know, Jerk. He could have at least come and cooked us food. <laughs> oh, man. Now it's my turn to butcher a name. Uh, Pitere Herena. That was my best shot, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just curious if maybe I mistyped it in the list and it's actually Peter. Oh, man. I hope that's not true. If it's Pete, Pete Peter Herena, thanks, buddy. Uh, if it's Pitere, I apologize because I don't know what's happening right now. Yeah, it's, it's my fault. Uh, Matthias, thank you, sir. David Long. Thanks, David. Hugh Yates. Thank you so much. Eric Easterly. Thank you very much, Eric. We appreciate it. Joey Martinez. He's also, I met him at a catacon and his dad. Very good guy. One of our big supporters right now. Thank you so much, man. Appreciate it. At Reverus on Twitter. Cody Boker. Thanks, Cody. And our newest, as of this recording, patron, John Arcadian. He of Gnome Stew. The uh, Tarasque fighting, uh, kilt wearing, a catacon attendee. Wow, that's that's just impressive. <laughs> yes, he's got good calves. <laughs> you apologize, John, but we <laughs> like your calves. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so with that, we now have a one new five star review that we need to read. Um, as always, we really appreciate. Well, first of all, we appreciate our patrons. We literally could not do what we do without them. A catacon absolutely would not have happened without that uh, support. And it's just nice to know that people connect with what we do and want to be a part of it and want to help us do bigger and better things, which we are working on more things to do to try to justify that uh, faith in us and that monetary support. So absolutely thank you so much. 
Uh, and again, the last thing we want to do today is we want to read our new five-star reviews. We have a new one. So, Caleb, I will turn it over to your dulcet tone, sir. All righty. This new five-star review on iTunes is titled Jamaican Accents and Roof Ninjas. Two of my least favorite things about this oh, entire no. podcast. Well, yeah, Jamaican Accent, no, but those Roof Ninjas were, were awesome. I hate those Roof Ninjas. Fuck those Roof Ninjas. Why were they on the roof? There is no reason for them to be on the roof. I will fight you until the day I die. No roof ninjas. And you will fall and land on, uh, what's his face, out the window. I know, every time. Ravage. Yeah. Yep. Alrighty, so this review is brought to us by Lurkin Chess 6. Lurkin Chess 6 writes, Just call me Luke. Save the trouble. Well, Luke, you should have wrote that first because I read these in order and I'm not skipping ahead. So Lurkin Chess 6 is what we're going to go with. There will be trouble. Lurkin Chess 6 says, I started a new job in September and I needed something to listen to. I had turned to podcasts in the past high school and went back to the well. I started off with other bits and bobs before I finally decided to find an RPG one, which led me to here. From the beginning, I was smitten. This podcast from the start was good, and I grew from there. I have grown to love the cast and hosts, Michael, Caleb, Matthew, and Scott, and the other guests and actual players whose name escaped me to bring joy and laughter to my life every day. Because of impeccable timing, I missed a catacomb this year. It won't happen again, let me tell you. April 13th. That's not when it's happening. That's not happening until November. I, I just want Kick, you to Kickstarter is when you can get yeah. your badge. Ki- yeah, you know. Kickstarter in April, but you're not coming to a Catacon until November. Uh, Lurkin Chess 6, I don't want you to show up in Dayton in April. That's not when it is. You can you can buy your ticket in April on Kickstarter. Just call him Luke. No, it's Lurkin Chess 6. He started the trouble. We're going to go with Lurkin Chess 6. If this guy comes to a Catacon and I call him anything but Lurkin Chess 6, uh, someone can punch me in the face because that is... Uh, that's what it is now from eternity from now to eternity lurkin chess six <laughs> that was stupid <laughs> in two months i lurkin chess six aka luke but lurkin chess six have listened to 95 percent of the content skipping some less interesting interviews for personal reasons well now you have to tell us what those personal reasons are because <laughs> that's just weird man come on The evolution of the show is obvious, and its final form is amazing. You guys are amazing, and I hope to listen and participate for many years. Let me know when you need help. I'd be more than happy. Smiley face emoji. Sorry for the long one, Caleb. First off, this is not the longest one I've ever read. That was Joss Whedon. Or Alan Tudyk, I don't know. Uh, The identity is a a little bit unclear at this point. And, uh... Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, your review. I appreciate you listening. Lurkin Chess 6, and thank you very much. Absolutely. So same with uh, our patrons. We really appreciate anyone who leaves us a review either on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. It does help us move up in the algorithms, makes it more likely that people will find us and give us a listen and become part of our growing community. So with that out of the way, this is time to close up the show. This has been Michael. And this has been Caleb. And this meeting is adjourned. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy Network. If you enjoy what we do here, 
then please check out therpgacademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize, but we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash vrpgacademy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the DriveThruRPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at therpgacademy.com and reach us on social media, such as Facebook and Google Plus at the RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, the Caleb G, at the Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at the RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Thank you.